Well, the follow-up act to the American Rescue Plan is called the American Jobs Plan. $2.3 trillion of wish list and kind of semi-infrastructure stuff. Soon to be followed thereafter by the American Family Plan. And of course, consequently, there should be a final one. The American Future Generations Bankruptcy Plan. This is Chris Joslin, and welcome to Jaws Bites. This edition of Jaws Bites is brought to you, as always, by iLevelLogistics.com. Go to our website at www.ilevellogistics.com and see everything that's waiting for you in terms of transportation logistics. Aggregated web news articles that you can click through, videos, audios, podcasts. You can see us on YouTube. You can hear us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Get your information up to date. Get it now and learn more about what is going to be, continue to be a mainstreamed view of the transportation logistics industry. Always, as always, come join us and be part of the community. Well, welcome everyone to another edition of Jaws Bites. I am Chris Joslin, your host, welcoming you back. It is the 6th day of April, 2021, the year after living through whatever the hell we were living through in 2020. But welcome again. And I, I, I want to take a few minutes today to go over really um, kind of a, a review of the American Jobs Plan. Uh, about 23 pages of interesting communication from the White House for a plan that it was kind of dubbed the Infrastructure Plan. Uh, it's not entirely, well, I guess it depends on, depends on your definition of infrastructure these days. And that has been an expanding definition over the years. Originally, back 100 years ago, infrastructure kind of only meant the backbone of our societal need in terms of transportation, logistics, things like that, and building roads out, building rails out, building uh, dredging and waterways and ports and all the things that are the engineered solutions to driving the economy in our country. Infrastructure since then has taken, since the, in more recent times, has taken on the, the overtone of, of uh, things that have digital consequences, uh, social ramifications, and in, in, uh, things inclusive of a variety of new technologies. So with this expanded definition and understanding of what infrastructure is, at least according to this current administration, you got to look beyond the backbone of our societal need in the United States. We've gone from roadways and waterways and bridges and, and dredging and, and shipping lanes and things like that in, in terms of uh, serious infrastructural projects to a, a much much broader expanded definition of, of things to include social constructs and, and uh, new technologies and super or information superhighways and the ability to connect, 100% connect with all the, the communities and the populace in this country. Those are broad strokes. They're, they're things to be um, 
commended in terms of wants, but they're also to be looked at a little askance because once you dive into the, the details in this American jobs plan, you discover that there's a huge amount of cost involved with getting these things completed properly. And it, really the, the plan is a, a giant wish list of, of things that we'll go over here in just a moment, uh, of which, you know, some portion of it will have to be negotiated through. If this gets into a, a situation in Congress that gets into what they call reconciliation, where it just needs a, a majority vote, which a tie, of course, can be broken by our vice president at this point because it's a 50-50 split in the Senate. But again, it is a wish list. This is how our process works in the United States. And and this is a consequence of how we vote from every couple of years for our congressmen and senators and eventually every four years for our president. Because we put people into power that have a view of what their constituency wants and they're going to drive toward a conclusive direction to get those kinds of things done. Now, behind the curtains, there's all kinds of agendas that we could talk about forever and that this isn't the place to do that. But what I wanted to do today is just take a few minutes and go over kind of the highlights of this overall and then how it pertains to the transportation logistics environment today. So without further ado, let me just give you a quick rundown. $2.29 trillion is what this plan comes out to. The trans- there's four kind of main categories that this is broken down into. Again, this is a 23-page document, so I'm not going to get into the weeds on it too much. But the transportation infrastructure was a $621 billion of the $2.29 trillion. That's the transportation infrastructure. Now, I believe, from, from my point of view, it would be great to put a transportation infrastructure package together independent of all this other stuff and focus in on something that could be a, a dual-party negotiated byproduct at the end of the day through, through the, the Congress. But that, that's me. The, the second part was a, a more of a community infrastructure kind of bill which has a lot of legs as well because within that con within that context they talk a lot about clean drinking water and the need to replace 100% of the lead line pipes that are still in huge number of communities in the United States today so that's the community infrastructure point that's 689 billion of the two point so 6 621 for the transportation in- infrastructure then uh, the community infrastructure at $689 billion. Then R&D workspace and manufacturing at $580 billion. And that comes into play with, with pulling manufacturing back to the United States or keeping it there, and you'll see why in, in, in a second or two, and de- defining around that uh, where research and development goes, how, how, it's, how work environments are, are moved toward a more in the terms of this administration getting places that have been s- historically marginalized more access to this portion of our manufacturing. And then the final part, which was $400 billion, was more about elderly health care. So, you know, bridges, roads, highways, public transportation, ports, waterways, airports, rail and freight, and then this whole electric uh, kind of area we're talking about. But so... The the president's plan 
as it stands right now, which I'm sure will change over the course of, of this negotiation period, um, has about $115 billion going to highways, bridges, and roads. That's about 20,000 miles of highway of roadway and the worst 10,000 bridges in the United States overall getting some form of repair and update. Long, long overdue. We need a, a, a huge amount of that. And if you, if you get into the numbers, you probably see that there's a... By not doing this, we're costing transportation providers and even the the public that uses these roadways and bridges a huge amount of money in extra fuel costs and time and in repairs because of potholes and uh, there's a lot of safety involved so there's 115 million there and another 20 million for highway safety in general now that's 135 million excuse me 135 billion i'm using the the wrong giant numbers right that that 135 billion constitutes maybe six percent of the whole thing. That's that's where a lot of the pushback is going to come from, because if you're trying to define this as an infrastructure bill, and you're trying to point at it as as a necessary competitive um, uh, situation for us compared to the rest of the world, because that's a lot of the reasoning behind this is that we're way behind China in doing this, or we're ranked 13th or 14th in infrastructural programs in this way or that way. Well, a lot of that has to do with the age of the infrastructure we have. We were one of the first in the world to do a lot of things. Consequently, other people have caught up or are spending more money to do those things, and our situation needs to be revitalized. There is no doubt about that. It's a bipartisan issue. It's something that could go through a process if focused in on just that with nominal numbers uh, probably pretty quickly because it does create a lot of jobs as well especially on the heels of things like the pipelines being uh, taken offline where you're losing a lot of jobs those jobs have to be replaced somehow that is addressed within the context of this american jobs plan it's addressed in part later on by talking about how we can get union jobs to cap orphan oil wells and and close up old mines and things yeah, like that. Part of that $621 billion in transportation infrastructure really points in the direction of electrification of our, our national uh, transportation. It's right now less than 1% of the, the total number of vehicles on the road are electric. That's just, th- those are the numbers. And, and, it's going to take a long time to change that. But the the current administration wants to force the agenda and is, wants to spend $174 billion in grants and other incentives to encourage the state and local uh, governments to do exactly what I'm talking about, electrify things. Part of that would be putting about 500,000 EV stations in place. Certainly the truck stops all over the United States are want to get involved with that and want to get the subsidies to allow them to expand their footprint to include EV stations for the upcoming version of whatever commercial vehicles have electri- uh, been electrified. So that is that is there. And, and part of that also would be to move uh, the entire U.S. postal fleet to electric vehicles and up to 20% of the buses for schools, the yellow buses, to that version of 
of fuel as well. Now, the next portion of this American Jobs Act is the community infrastructure part with $689 billion uh, going toward that portion of this bill. Now, that has a lot to do with the electric grid and the water in the, this country. And I mentioned a little bit earlier, I believe, that, that the, one of the goals of this is to take 100% of the lead line pipes that are out there and completely replace them in this country. That's a huge amount of money, and $111 billion is being invested through this act into the in clean water, with $45 billion of that amount going specifically to the lead, repl- lead pipe replacement plan. Um, this community infrastructure has to do with two other components. I mentioned one, the electric grid. The electric grid is, is getting antiquated, and there's a lot of private equity money going into uh, new grids, new, more robust kind of uh, plans to hold energy, to distribute it properly, to integrate clean energy into the, uh, the grid in a, in a more concise and better way. And this also, one of the parts of this package wants to address the need for high-speed broadband in 100% of the nation as well. So in other words, giving access to everybody in what is defined as infrastructure for the uh, uh, information superhighway. Now, Biden's proposal would also invest $213 billion in housing and other buildings, retrofitting them retrofitting up to 2 million homes to improve public housing and access to more housing. And part of that would also be able to mobilize union trade workers to provide jobs for for that kind of retrofit and to impact the zoning laws to allow for better and more affordable housing because there's a large percentage of population today that spend an inordinate amount of money of their monthly income on rental alone. Now, the third portion, $580 billion, was R&D manufacturing and workforce development. Now, that ties into transportation in some ways as well. Spending $180 billion for clean energy and emissions reduction and things like that. We had a, a podcast a while back called PR, I think, 1305 or 2305, excuse me. And this was pertinent to California. Now, one of the DOT's uh, subsecretaries comes from the California Resource Board, and was head of that. So a lot of the things that went on in California are going to be translated into some of the carbon-neutral, carbon, neutral, carbon uh, emissions sequestration that is kind of the backbone of what they want to do with, with some of this green initiatives that are going on. So this is like, this is like the Green New Deal light, really, in a lot of, in a lot of ways. But a lot of this, this R&D, manufacturing, workforce development rides on the back of that whole carbon platform, which we've talked about before. We can talk about again. It's, 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 you're going to be, they're going to be forcing private businesses to watch not only their own kind of carbon emission situation, but those of anybody coming into their sphere of influence. That affects transportation quite a lot because as I mentioned in the, the podcast from a couple of weeks ago, which you can look up on on um, YouTube or Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever, the PR 2305, 
there's going to be responsibility of warehouses in particular to capture uh, what they call fugitive emissions supplied by companies that they are not. So they're going to have some kind of qualifier to allow trucks in and out of their facilities that meet the requirements that the government is, is placing on all of us here. And this is going to be a nationalized kind of scenario. Now, part of this also, this workforce development program, it, it has to do with the PRO Act, the PRO Act. Now, again, I had a podcast a little while ago. You can look that one up, too. I think it says Jaws Bites and then Pro, React to PRO Act, as a matter of fact, is what it says. And that's, that's kind of really a touch point with our industry. Because what that PRO Act does, and it's, it, the PRO stands for protecting the rights to organize, which is a huge nod, actually more than a nod, in this, uh, in this American Jobs Act toward the unions. Now, there, there has been a long slide of years that have gone, the unions have been impacted over time by a younger, more entrepreneurial work as they go, change multiple careers. We don't want to work for anybody kind of mentality. The millennials these days, if you talk to any of them, will tell you a lot of those kinds of things. Heck, the, the, I watched a, a documentary the other day on Hulu, great one to, to look, watch, by the way, but it was called, about WeWork and the rise and fall of that. And conceptually, the idea of WeWork, which was a space-sharing, office-sharing kind of company definition, is a great one for young, single-specifically millennials that wanted to have a community but you wanted to have the independence of their work frame of mind, their workspace. So uh, where does this go with the American Jobs Act? Here's where it goes. The PRO Act does a couple of different major things. It, it redefines about 27 or I think it's 37 different states and basically takes away and redefines what the right-to-work states have defined for themselves individually and nationalizes the ABC test that the, the Assembly Bill 5 in California passed about two years ago. Now, that ABC test has a B-prong to it that basically says you can't hire an outside contractor to, that does the same kind of thing you do as a business. So the lease-owned uh, independent contractor model that is indicative throughout the United States for the transportation industry for drivers would be crushed by this. Now, it's likely that they may have to try to find a hybrid if, if something like this goes through and there's a definite push for something like this to go through nationally because they're trying to nationalize something that's already happened in California. There's always a million different carve-outs for this, but the PRO Act would do that. It would get rid of the right to work and right to work states. And then it would redefine um, independent contractors as W-2 employees for people they don't actually work for. So that's a, that, is, that is redefining quite a bit how things are managed in, in the United States today in terms of not just the transportation industry, but all kinds of industries that utilize independent contracting. Now, in some other countries, there is kind of a hybrid in between, something that we may have to go to in this country to find a way to moderate the 
abuses that can occur when you have independent contractors because that it, it can happen. You know, I, just to give you a, a a quick reference point, when you if you own a trucking company and that trucking company has X number of drivers, and then you also have fill in the the gaps you need to because business goes up and up and down seasonally, or there are surges for all kinds of reasons. You fill that gap with independent contractors. Now, if the number of independent contractors reaches a certain portion of your overall revenue generated from that transportation or the transactions from that transportation, then the workman's comp insurance that an independent contractor doesn't have to have if they're a single operator, right? They're an owner of a company. So they, they as an owner of a company, you don't have to insure yourself for workman's comp. You're taking the risk. But if then you are working for another company, the insurance people are going, hey, our risk isn't spread enough. Somebody's going to sue somebody and they're going to sue. They're not going to sue the independent contractor that doesn't have the insurance themselves. They're going to sue the company that's hiring the independent contractor. And then they're going to say that independent contractor is really not an independent contractor because you're paying for their insurance, at least a part of it, because that's where I'm going with this. That's what you end up having to do is you end up having to pay for a proportional amount of the revenue gained from using an independent contractor to cover workman's comp that may or may not happen. Gets very complicated, very frustrating, <laughs> but it is but it is part of what you have to look at when you're going through this kind of thing. So having said that, nationalizing by using this PRO Act, which is tucked into the American Jobs Act, uh, will force people to hire more or use a driver pool that becomes a W-2 driver pool instead of an independent contractor pool. Now, that's a great thing from a statistical jobs analysis point of view. Not so great thing if you want to work for yourself. There's going to be a, a, a battle around these kind of things. And maybe there's going to be a, a happy medium where you can be an independent contractor as an overarching business model but for these situations, you're a dependent contractor, if you will. Perhaps there's something like that that can evolve from this. And my suspicion is that this American Jobs Act will not go through the way it stands here unless, unless it does go to reconciliation. You know, ultimately, it is, you know, I said it this at the very beginning when we, when we started, when I started this, this rendition of, of Jaws Bites, because you know, we've got, we had the American Rescue Act, which supplied some direct checks to people all over the country that, that needed a little, little boost because you didn't have enough money to spend at Amazon already. So you got some more, right? And, uh, then this, and that was 1.9 trillion. These, these numbers are astronomical. They almost don't, we almost don't have the right words to make people understand how big these numbers really are. But that was 1.9 trillion. Then you come up with this American jobs plan, which is $2.3 trillion. Now that's part one of, of two, because they're supposed to be coming probably within the month or so, another bill called the American families plan. I'm not really sure. I haven't researched what that may or may not include, but I'm sure it's going to, one thing I'm positive it'll include is a giant price tag that we can't afford, right? So in so that's you know that's where I come to the kind of final final thing for today on this and that's how are we going to pay for this right 
I said that at the very beginning. I said that the final act will be the, the, the future generations bankruptcy act because that's what we're really doing. We're, we're setting up a situation where a lot of people believe they can overcome the deficits this, can, this is going to create, but it's hard to see that. I hope that I'm wrong on it. There are economists that probably would tell me that, that this is something we can definitely easily pay for through growth and, and sustainability and competition with the rest of the country, with the rest of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And there are others that will say this is just something we have to do to modify the direction we're going with this planet. So whatever the argument is, I'm not here to create the arguments. I'm just here to give you this information from a from a transportation perspective and an overall kind of review of the situation. So how is how are we going to pay for this with the Made in America tax plan, which is much in code for reverse everything that the previous administration did. We're going to go from a 21% corporate tax rate back to a 28% corporate tax rate. Now, the reason it was lowered before was kind of the carrot game, right? There's always a carrot and a stick game. The carrot game was you're, you're spending too much money overseas. You're doing too many of these things. You're finding too many loopholes to, to leave our cash. Uh, American-generated ideas being manufactured in other countries and other countries getting the primary benefits for that and then turning around and not having the tariffs on them. That there's, it can get very complicated, but that was the direction the previous administration went, taking that, that, that kind of aggressive approach that said, hey, we're going to incent you to come back here. And part of that tax cut, which one side of the aisle rails about because it didn't have enough for middle America, in other, in the other side, says no. This is this was done to get all these companies back here, so that then they would hire in America, thus creating jobs for, um, you know, middle income people. So, again, a debate we could have, but the Made America tax plan basically says it will raise two trillion dollars over the next fifteen years to pay for this. Now, this this American Jobs Plan, American Jobs Act, is an eight year spend. Now, what I just told you here is a 15-year pay back based on this. So raising that corporate tax rate to 28% from 21 will do this. And, and at the same time, the Biden administration has decided to use kind of a, a, a stick approach, really. It's, it's the way I view it, at least so far, the way I'm reading this act. And that's we're going to raise your tax rate, but we're also going to raise the global minimum multinational corporate tax rate so that you can't get the benefit for going offshore again with this stuff. So, okay, we got you onshore now through the previous administration. <laughs> now that we got you here, we're going to raise your rate and we're not going to run what we don't want to allow you to go elsewhere. Now, I, I, I understand why they're doing that, but I think it's really incumbent upon all of us to understand also that corporations in general with the products and the goods, whether it's raw materials going somewhere, whether it's finished goods and uh, going to distribution, whether it's, you know, those kinds of things that come back into the United States to be sold to the common populace, the differences in how these dollars and cents are spent and where they're spent always filters down to you and I as the consumer. It's it, the absolute economic case. It all, it, it always works that way. There's a supply and demand. If we continue to have the demand for whatever it is, somebody will create that supply and they'll create it in such a way that it has a cost to it and a, a mechanism that, that either raises or lowers the amount of supply to dictate 
how high or how low that cost can go. And the ones that that pull those strings, well, there's two people, there's two entities that pull those strings. Number one is the regulators, which is code for the government. They're, they're the ones that put the regulations in place that then the corporations must follow. And if the corporations follow them, they have a series of, of folks that get together and analyze this stuff and, and unpack these these big data sets and say, okay, if we're going to be affected more costs here and less costs here or more costs on both sides and we have nowhere to run, we're going to filter that down on a per-piece basis to you and I. That is the way it works. So, you know, there, there would be a ramp-up in enforcement for U.S. corporations that typically invert um, tax claims now and find tax havens won't be able to do so so frequently if that's, again, if it's enforced. Because a lot of these things are put into law but not truly enforced. It's like the speed limit outside. I will never admit that I speed, but I certainly see a lot of people that do. And the fact of the matter is is that there's it's one thing to see a speed limit. It's another thing to see the enforcement of that speed limit, especially when everybody around you is driving over that limit. And it's the same with any of these kind of things. So all of that to say that we need to pay attention to these things. You know, government, depending on your point of view, can either play the role of, of oversight, the role of the entity that makes sure that some of the rules or most of the rules are being adhered to or at least watched to keep to keep people uh, on the right side of the ethical line, if you will, when large companies are getting too large or when people are abusing situations for employment or whatever the case may be. All those kinds of things are a great place for governments to reside. The other point of view on the government is that we've hired them to make all the decisions for us. I, you can, you can maybe guess from the way I talk, which I believe in most, we are blessed to live in a country that allows us the freedoms to be able to pursue our dreams, pursuit of happiness, right? To say pretty much is what, what is on our mind, though that is changing a bit these days, it seems. But without, without, the government dictating too much to us. So I think what I'd like to do today is just leave you with a, a really quick question. Okay. One, you can, it's, you can, anytime you want, by the way, you can comment on our website or on the videos or the audios that you listen to on podcasts, Spotify, etc. Again, www.ilevellogistics.com. Come join the community. Come join the conversation. Be a part of this. This is important stuff to you and I. And, but the question I want to leave you with is, how are we going to pay, right? And, and what this, this will do some great things for people in our industry, and it will hurt people in our industry, as most things do when they come from our government. It's kind of the way we evolve, the way we progress through things. And you can be on either side of the bait. It's not about what I think is right. It's about what you think is right and what you think our next step should be. But... How are we going to pay for it? Is there enough commerce that's going to be generated from these green new technologies, these carbon sequestrations, these, these different 
uh, road and rail projects, these different public-private combinations of things that occur to create a, a better connected web of both informational and transportational infrastructure. Will we be able to accommodate them and pay for them the way that the American Jobs Act wants us to? So with that, I'll let you go, and I hope to see you very soon on the next edition of Jobs Bites. 